welcome back to another great week of serious scientific discussion on diffusion. Today we'll be covering those hard-hitting topics currently being debated across the scientific community, like why is ice slippery? And we'll be talking about misleading but true science. But first, let's see what's headlining in news this week with Diffusion's Tilly Boleyn. The ubiquitous chemical acrylamide is back in the limelight this week in the lead-up to a meeting organised by the UN's food regulator. New Scientist has reported that the meeting has been called to discuss the progress of the worldwide acrylamide research effort, which was instigated by a press conference that shocked the world four years ago this week. In 2002, two Swedish scientists announced that they'd found the chemical acrylamide was present in a huge range of everyday foods. Acrylamide was previously only known as a toxic industrial chemical and a summit organised by the World Health Organisation later that year revealed how little was known about the chemical and its effects. Its discovery in food was only made after an investigation into the death of a herd of cows drinking acrylamide contaminated water. When researchers were checking if the industrial workers had been exposed to dangerous levels of acrylamide from the leak, the control group, who had had no industrial exposure, also showed unexpectedly high levels of the chemical in their blood. Over the past four years, tens of millions of dollars have been spent on a variety of research projects to find out more about the chemical. It has been found that it's formed at temperatures above 120 degrees Celsius from reactions between amino acids and reducing sugars in foods like potatoes and pastries. It's also found in coffee. The biggest current concern is around if acrylamide in food can cause cancer. Now, don't you all start clearing your cupboards now, as none of the subsequent research in humans has directly linked acrylamide ingestion with cancer yet. But efforts to reduce levels of acrylamide in food will continue until more is understood about its effects. In the near future, we may be able to use honeybees to sniff it out in food anyway. New Scientist has reported that researchers at a small British company called Insentinel have developed a highly sensitive odour detector with a difference. The as yet unnamed prototype uses a team of honeybees as its sensors and has no doubt got military and security services, police and customs officials rubbing their hands with glee. The team of three bees are exposed to an odour while they're given a drop of sugar water. And after four six-second sessions, the bees link the target odour to food. They're then secured in a shoebox-sized drawer and air is pumped past the bees' heads while a camera records their responses. The bees can detect traces of odours at the parts per trillion, which is very similar to a dog. The company's general manager, Rachel Carson, explained to New Scientist how they record the bees' responses. Apparently, if they stick their tongues out, the software registers a yes. If they don't, it's a no. And luckily their tongues are so long that you can't ever mistake the signal. This bee device has already detected explosives, hidden tobacco, and most importantly, cheap whiskey masquerading as a top brand. But with commercial release expected in a year's time, the sky is the limit for these busy little workers. Bombs, drugs, dead bodies, diseases are all in their sights but will they be able to detect sick sheep? 
In Australian science news, researchers at Melbourne's La Trobe University are now using man's best friend's enthusiastic nose to detect sick sheep. ABC Science Online reports that sniffer dogs have been trained to detect traces of internal parasitic worms in sheep by sniffing their back ends or their poo. The specially trained German shepherd named Seb has been able to detect parasite-infected sheep with an 80-90% to accuracy. Internal worm parasite infections in sheep currently cause serious problems for Australian farmers. The effects of the worms on sheep include decreased wool and meat production, increased susceptibility of the sheep to other diseases and sometimes death. Lower quality of the sheep's life aside, these worms cost the Australian sheep industry millions of dollars a year. The researchers are now investigating what chemical changes the dog is sensing so an electronic handheld device can also be developed in this field. ABC Science Online spoke to the project's chief investigator, Associate Professor Mark Sandelman, who outlined that the detector may be refined using biosensor technology so sheep could be checked easily and quickly for parasites in the future. And that is all your Diffusion Science news for this week. Thank you, Tilly, for this week's Diffusion Science News. Now, ice. It's made from that stuff called water. But ever wondered if there's more to this drink chiller? Like, if there's more types than just party ice? The very cool Adam Richardson brings us up to speed on this topic. Have you ever wondered why you can skate on ice but not on steel? What's the difference between the two? Well, one is a bunch of water crystals, while the other is a bunch of iron crystals. But why does that matter? After hundreds of years of trying to solve this problem, the official answer is, we don't know. The answer that's been given for almost a century is that when you add pressure to ice, such as the weight of a person on very small ice skates, the melting point lowers by a certain amount. If the temperature of the ice was less than this difference in melting points, the ice turns to liquid under your feet and you slide. So if the pressure of your weight drops the melting point to, say, minus 6 degrees, but the ice is only at minus 5 degrees, then it melts and you get your feet wet. But then someone actually stopped to do the maths. Robert Rosenberg, a professor of chemistry at Lawrence University in the US, recently explained that the pressure of a person using ice skates, that's around 3.5 kilograms per square centimetre, the freezing point drops by less than a 50th of a degree, So while it's a real effect, it doesn't explain why a person standing on ice at minus one degree will slip and fall. If you want even more proof, try this experiment for yourself. Get two ice cubes and squeeze them together. Do they melt or freeze to form one bigger ice cube? The pressure explanation says they should melt and remain separate, but we all know they actually stick together. The second theory as to why ice is slippery says that friction from a skate sliding over the ice causes it to melt. This is also true to some degree. Ice that looks perfectly smooth has lots of microscopic bumps on it, and as the skate hits these, it causes friction, which in turn causes heat. The heat melts the ice to a thin, slippery liquid layer and then refreezes as soon as the skate has passed. But if that were the end of the story, it wouldn't explain why you can slip over on ice if you're wearing rubber-soled shoes with a very low contact pressure and standing still, producing no no friction or heat. The third idea of why ice is slippery is to do with the molecular structure. The water molecule is a V-shape, with an angle in the middle a bit bigger than a right angle. 
It sits in a lattice with other molecules that locks them into position within the ice. But at the surface, there are no other molecules to lock the water molecule in place, so it's free to move slightly. And when molecules are free to move, you have a liquid. Well, sort of true. A molecule on the surface of ice is still being blocked by other molecules on the surface from moving horizontally, but it is free to vibrate up and down. This is an unusual state of matter called a quasi-fluid. It's a liquid if viewed in one direction, but a solid if viewed in another. It also has remarkable electrical properties forming a protonic semiconductor, which is like a regular silicon semiconductor, but has protons carrying current rather than electrons. This quasi-fluid means that all ice on Earth has a very slippery film on the outside, regardless of temperature. But it's also been discovered that this film is too thin to account for the full slipperiness of ice. Scientists think the true reason is a combination of all three factors. The qualities of the bulk ice under pressure, the microscopic lumps and bumps causing friction heating, and the nanoscopic quasi-fluid that forms a naturally slippery skin. But for plain old ice, it is remarkable that no one really knows for sure. But that's hardly the end of the mystery of ice. At low pressure, such as here on the Earth's surface, it forms a hexagonal crystal called Ice-1H. That's why snowflakes have six sides. This hexagonal crystal is not an efficient way of packing molecules in a lattice, and so that's why ice has a lower density than water. In the upper atmosphere, a different crystal forms with a cubic shape. It's called Ice-1C. If we increase the pressure to 2,000 times the atmosphere, the ice turns into a completely different substance called ice-2. Such enormous pressures don't exist anywhere on the Earth's surface, even at the bottom of the Antarctic ice cap, and so neither does this exotic ice. Ice-7 is a very exotic form of ice that forms at over 48,000 atmospheres and at temperatures of up to 200 degrees Celsius, and it's thought to occur naturally 150 kilometres underground, but since no one's been there, no one really knows for sure. Another form of ice, ice-6, is a form that can't exist anywhere on the Earth outside of a lab, but scientists believe it may exist naturally at very low temperatures and very high pressures, like deep inside massive icy bodies such as the Jovian moons Ganymede and Callisto. All these forms of ice have, ex have the oxygen atom in the molecule bound in a lattice and the hydrogen atoms free to vibrate. But at the coldest temperatures, around minus 200 degrees or 70 above absolute zero, Another form of ice, called ice-11, forms which the hydrogen atoms also freeze in place. This is probably the type of ice that would be found on the surface of Pluto or the moons of Neptune at the very limits of the solar system. The least understood of all is water that freezes without any shape, forming a glass rather than an ice crystal. No one is really sure yet how to make it consistently or even what its properties are. Ice forms from one of the simplest and most common molecules known, but with 13 different types discovered so far, it's not a simple material. So there's a lot of research to be done before we understand the physics of a good margarita, but the diffusion gang will keep at it, all in the name of science, of course. Thank you, Adam, but you forgot the very popular vanilla ice. <laughs> Still to come on Diffusion, Ian Wolfe is reporting on misleading signs, but now we're going to head over to a track by Lisa Ekdal called Yaskria. Jag kommer alltid vara sån här så kom och ta mig Eller låt bli för sån här är jag Ja det vill jag förbli 
Magicians exploit the flaws in our perceptions to create entertaining illusions. Deception is a part of all human societies, and it's believed that deceiving other people is where we learn our theory of mind. Are politicians the only ones who have taken up these skills from the stage and into real life? Ian Wolfe puts on his top hat and takes his magic wand to investigate. As a scientist and a magician, I know that things aren't always what they seem. Magicians are honest liars. Nobody is expected to believe that they have real magic powers. It's innocent fun for entertainment purposes only. Politicians and spin doctors also use the art of deceptive truths to create an illusion. But in this case, it's not in your interest to be fooled. This is not behaviour you'd expect from the scientific community. Laser makes solid vanish, screams the headline. On the surface, this press release tells the story of scientists who have achieved a remarkable magic trick. They can make matter disappear by shining a laser on it. Researchers speculate that in the future, with brand new research, they'll be able to find earthquake victims by making the rubble from collapsed walls invisible. This is the story reported by the ABC, New Scientist and all the major science news outlets. If you strip away the glamour of misdirection and look with the eyes of a magician, a much more interesting story appears. The original paper published in Nature, Gain Without Inversion in Semiconductor Nanostructures, reveals that scientists have invented a material with artificial atoms that become transparent when you shine an infrared laser on them. The paper calls it electromagnetically induced transparency. This is a remarkable achievement in nanotechnology. Artificial atoms are made from tiny single electron transistors called quantum dots. They're as small and precise a control over electricity as you can get. 
By controlling the voltage to the quantum dots, you can make the dot transistors behave as if they were atoms of different materials than they were actually made from. So what possible motivation could there be for capturing and leading attention away from the meat of their invention? The honest answer is that I don't know, but we could have an intelligent guess. Let's see, who would want something that makes you invisible to night vision? It's a curious coincidence that the first practical application for artificial atoms happens to have a direct military application. There's no fraud or cover-up here, because they're playing the game by the rules. But there is deception, and all the reports spread the illusion. The scientific paper is available in the journal and on the internet. The press release and most of the articles written from its template do tell the truth about the research, in amongst the fantasies. Political journalists are used to yes-minister-style evasions of the truth. When the American military were asked directly if they were torturing prisoners in Guantanamo Bay and Abu Ghraib, instead of answering a truthful yes or a lying no, the spokesman said, we're not known for that, which is a truthful evasion. He then directed everybody away from his evasion by saying, it's not in our culture, which forces you to think about culture and the torture of the Hussein regime, perhaps, by which time you've forgotten that he hasn't answered your question. Science journalists aren't used to this treatment. Investigative science journalists look for fake results, actual scientific fraud, or a politically motivated cover-up. Otherwise, the scientists and their publicists are just trying to communicate and promote their work. It's not expected that they would spin the story to direct your attention away from the truth that they themselves are telling you. Look at this hand, waving the wand that has all the magic, while I hide what the other hand is doing right in front of your eyes. This is the illusionist ancient art of misdirection. Another example is the recent research into chronic fatigue syndrome. Again, the public was distracted by a colourful headline, it's not just in the mind, and by a fantasy about exciting research that hasn't been done. In this case, the illusion is that brain scans have been conducted which indicate that chronic fatigue syndrome is caused by an injury to specific regions of the brain. The press release and all the reports around the world showed mocked up pictures of what looked like a brain scan with some regions highlighted. Again, if you look with a magician's eyes and penetrate the glamour, the reality is very different. The research papers show that the actual study had nothing to do with brain scans. The scientists have no evidence for brain injuries at all. The publicists were pointing in a new direction. What they really did was look at whether people were suffering from chronic fatigue syndrome were suffering ongoing infections for one of the viral glandular fevers such as Epstein-Barr, Q fever or Ross River fever. A fraction of people who suffer these infections don't recover, and they go on to be labelled with chronic fatigue syndrome, which is known in the USA as chronic fatigue and immune dysfunction syndrome, or CFIDS. It was discovered 14 years ago that CFID sufferers don't suffer an ongoing viral infection. The researchers confirmed this negative result. Negative results are valid science, so this isn't fraud. However, I would guess that confirming that your theories are wrong and that you just don't know what causes chronic fatigue syndrome isn't exciting news. It's also less likely to get you funding from authorities in America and Australia. The researchers chose not to answer my questions. In both cases, the spin technique is the same. They have a headline that captures your attention and is used verbatim by most journalists. This is followed by the truth, woven with an imagined directing fantasy about research that they haven't actually conducted. The real scientific papers are referred to, and the real research is explained somewhere in the press release, but most of it directs you to the fantasy, the illusion fools those who read it. After all, the editors have to sell newspapers and magazines, and everybody's honest because the real story is out there, right in front of your eyes, where you'll never think to look for it.
You get extra points for finding the original scientific paper, interpreting it into plain English, and trying to contact the scientist directly. Of course, not every journalist can be expected to be able to understand scientific papers in every field. Few physicists could read a medical paper, and few medical researchers could understand a physics paper. Not everybody can juggle, but most people could learn if they tried. But then I would say that. I'm a magician. And next week, Ian Wolfe will be performing more astounding feats on Diffusion. Whether you're listening to us in Sydney, somewhere across Australia, or across the world via our podcast, you're still listening to Diffusion. Now, I'm really excited about this. Somebody has gone off and done the ultimate study that we've all debated across the years. But according to Science Online, or ABC Science Online, They've done a study at the University of Leuven in Belgium on the effects of different triggers and different sexy, racy kind of triggers on men. Now, oh. they've done this. Yes. Hmm. Hmm. Tilly's sitting here going, yeah, we know where this is going. <laughs> yeah. Where on earth do they get the volunteers? Oh, who knows? Well, just on the, the volunteers, I passed the article across the table here and it's got a picture of a nice-looking young lady in a bikini. And what, what was your reaction to this, Adam? I believe it was something to the effect of, ooh, picture. <laughs> <laughs> now, they've gone off and they've, they've done this study by using a different gambling game. And they've looked at two different types of men, so men with high testosterone levels and men with low testosterone levels. And they're sitting there playing this bargaining game and then they've shown different pictures, so sexy pictures or lingerie, to the men playing the game and see how this affects their rate of bargaining. And what they've found is that men with high testosterone levels are likely to sit there and drive a harder bargain. But when shown these different triggers, so shown a picture or given lingerie, their rate of bargaining slows down. So so them seeing a picture of a scantily clad woman or holding a brassiere actually stops them bargaining harder for, for monetary gain. Almost it's... as if they're distracted. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Who would have thought? Who would have thought? Pretty girls distract men. Wow, that is... That, there's a headline for you. <laughs> so it's just confirmed everything across everything that you might have heard. So what happened with the men with low testosterone? I don't think it really did much at all, not in comparison to the men with high testosterone. But they've measured the levels of testosterone in the men. This is what I found kind of interesting. They've measured the levels of testosterone in the men by... Well, they develop different levels of testosterone in the womb. And this can be measured by looking at the length of their ring finger. (laughs) I always thought that that was... Is that actually true? (laughs) Apparently. (laughs) Is what actually true, Tilly? (laughs) (laughs) That you can measure testosterone by the length of the finger. Well, apparently, I was reading that and I thought, oh, that was a joke in high school, but hey. <laughs> Which is kind of going to become very... Any girls that are listening out there, this could become very handy if you're ever playing a game of poker. Um, it's actually more handy than that because it's supposed to... About, the amount of testosterone, not only is it supposed to determine how long your fingers are and what proportion, mm-hmm. but by looking at that, you, you might be able to tell whether someone's more of a gentle or a more aggressive type. And really? Your type in the bar. How? Yeah. Tell us, tell us. You're looking at the length of their fingers, yeah. whether they're even or whether the ring finger is longer. Or so, so ring finger longer means that they're more aggressive? That's, yes. That's longer than the index finger. Longer than the, the index, index finger. finger, right. Ah, interesting. Wow, you learn something I knew new. That was a reason why I <laughs> Absolutely, you learn something new every day. <laughs> 
I also saw a study that showed that when men were looking at sexual imagery or violent imagery, that their minds went blank suddenly. So they'd, you'd be driving along on a road, you'd see a billboard with a pretty girl, and you might go blank and crash. Yep, been there. <laughs> I think I. week but you can catch all of our archived weeks on diffusion at feeds.feedburner.com slash diffusion radio diffusion is produced in the studios of 2SER and we're broadcast all across Australia by the community broadcasting network contributing this week was Adam Richardson Ian Wolf and Tilly Boleyn Tilly was also our fantastic producer this week you can send us emails of your burning scientific questions to diffusion at 2SER.com I'm Jackie Pepper and I'll see you next week for another great scientific half hour on Diffusion.